So now I want to talk about the mystery of the origin of life. This is a technical lecture. With intent, I'm not going to mention God or gods or an intelligent designer. Science will be used to critique science. And then once I finish that part, then I'll trans, uh, transfer back into, into the, the, the other topics of faith. But on this, because if I mention anything to do with faith, people will say, oh, this was a religious talk, so we can dismiss it. No, this is going to be purely scientific. So if you're not a scientist, just bear with us. Now, this is, this is a car where they took apart as many parts as they could take off with a screwdriver and a wrench. Now, you see the tires are still on the wheels because you need another piece of equipment for that. These are, there's still parts that are assembled here, but there's a lot of parts here. Could you put that back together? Maybe you could, but it'd be hard. It'd be hard to do that, right? Especially without instructions. And, and there's a lot of parts to a car. Now, you only have a few basic kinds of material here in a car. You, you, have, you have metal, you have, you have fabric, you have rubber, you have plastic, just a few b basic types of materials, classes of materials, but you have a lot of different compounds you've got to deal with. That's what's putting together a car. A cell is much, much harder than a car. Much harder. Not just a little bit harder, much harder. A cell is far more complex than a car. Anybody who would say differently really doesn't know. A cell is extremely complex. That's a car. Take apart. Can you put that together? Now, they're not all together like that in one place. Maybe some special people could do that. But they're spread out all over. So what if we took some of these parts and we threw them in the middle of this ocean so they went down a few miles deep? And then the other ones on some of the Himalaya mountains over here. And other ones in the desert. And we spread them out. Now, could you, could you get all those parts and put them together? This is what happens in Origin of Life. They take all these different pieces and they say, well, this happened in, at, at some subsea vent. And this happened by a volcano. And this happened just next to an ice cap. And how'd they get together? Oh, I don't know. They just got together. And so if we waited enough time, would all those parts come together? It's kind of hard, right? The other problem is, many people say it didn't just happen on Earth. It spread throughout the galaxy. Okay, now get those parts spread on all those different planets. And all those... And Put it together. You think it's easy? This is what's done in Origin of Life. This is what's done. All right, now, look at these parts. What happens is they decompose. So these parts sit there. You can't just leave the parts and have them... We'll, we'll put them together. If you wait enough time... Well, enough time, they decompose. They fall apart. You can't use these parts anymore. They're not usable. So even if you had them all together, they're not usable anymore. Time is the enemy because things decompose. So just because you made something, it doesn't sit there forever. It decomposes faster than those cars. Organic molecules decompose. Take a piece of meat and put it outside. Tell me how long that thing lasts. I mean, these things decompose. They're spread out all over and they de decompose. I'm just showing you this so that you get a sense that... you. To make a car spread out over a large area and things decomposing, it's hard. With that backdrop, we go to what is the origin of life? This is a cell. A cell is far more complex than a car. A cell heals itself. A cell will form these microtubules to pass material from point A to point B. Once that material is passed, the microtubule breaks down and then forms in another place. And the reason it does that is because if it left all those microtubules in place then the cell would become too rigid and it would run out of materials to build more transporter uh, uh, banks to, to push materials across. So it reconstructs things. It, it has your energy centers. It has control centers. It has all of these different pieces. There's a lot of things flowing in and out across this lipid bilayer. 
Huge amount of control. Huge amount. And what happens is it gets harder every year. It gets harder every year because we learn more about the cell and its complexity. So the target of making a cell, for origin of life, you have to make the first cell. And then you can allow things for evolution to take place. This is pre-evolution, pre-biology, no enzymes yet, just simple raw materials on a prebiotic earth. Things like hydrogen cyanide, acetone, formic acid, carbon dioxide. That's it. Nitrogen, ammonia. That's it. Some oxygen. And now you've got to put together a cell like this. Molecules don't care about life. Organisms care about life. Chemistry, on the contrary, is utterly indifferent to life. Without a biologically derived entity acting upon them, molecules have never been shown to evolve toward life. Molecules do not evolve. Biologists, people have heard biologists use the word evolution and they say these molecules evolve. That word doesn't, doesn't work in synthetic organic chemistry. Are there any synthetic organic chemists here today? Okay, one, two, three, right? All right, any others? All right, so you guys hold me accountable. All right, you folks hold me accountable. If I say something that is synthetically untrue, you got you to shout out, that's not true! All right? Because I want the, because all, synthetic organic chemists live in this world. They understand molecules. If you make molecules for a living, you understand what they do and what they don't do. Molecules don't move toward life. You want to see self-assembly that doesn't move toward life. You can get self-assembly, ordered assembly, AAAA or ABAB. But you have to have non-regular assembly patterns for life to, in a non-equilibrium system. Everything is non-regularly assembled. All right, almost every chemical synthesis experiment in origin of life research can be summed up by a protocol analogous to this. So if you want to send me, you know, people send me, what, what about this? Have they proved it? What, it all falls into this. Trust me, don't send me any more emails or papers that you found. It falls into this. You purchase some chemicals, generally in high purity, from a chemical company. Mix those chemicals together in water at a high concentration or in a specific order under some set of carefully devised conditions in a modern lab. Obtain a mixture of compounds that have a resemblance to one or more of the four basic classes of chemicals needed for life. Carbohydrates, nucleic acids, amino uh, uh, acids, and lipids. Four classes of molecules. Remember we said we had fabric, we had plastics, we had rubber, and we had metal. These are the four basic building blocks of a cell. You publish a paper making bold assertions about origin of life from these functionless crude mixtures of stereochemically scrambled intermediates, much like Miller-Urey did in 1952. Then you engage with the ever-gullible press to dial up the knob of unjustified extrapolations, watch the mesmerized layperson to exclaim, you see, scientists understand how life formed. And then you encourage a generation of science textbook writers to make colorful, deceptive cartoons of raw chemicals assembling into cells, which then emerge as slithering creatures from a prehistoric pond. That's what's done all the time, and the public is, is, is mesmerized, and they think that people have made life. That's not true. They haven't made life. They haven't even come close. Haven't even come close. Miller-Urey experiment in 1952 was a great experiment to make a few amino acids by putting charges across a few basic chemicals. But all of it has stayed there. We, we don't know how to deal with these. They're all scrambled, and we just get all this junk, and it's very high concentration. If you had that local concentration in the world someplace, you'd have to have the world full of these chemicals all in one place. The synthesis problem. Molecules 
that compose living systems almost always show homochirality, meaning that you have left-handed molecules and right-handed molecules. They're non-superimposable mirror images of one another. That's why your left hand can't fit into a right-handed glove. It's hard to make these synthetically in a lab. You say, well, biology does this all the time. It does because it has enzymes. But this is pre-biology. This is prebiotic. This is before biology started, before a cell could make enzymes to do this sort of thing. You have to do this just from raw chemicals. It's hard to do this, really hard to do this in the lab. When building molecular systems, constant redesigns are needed, which take you back to step one. So you put a new methyl group on a molecule. You go, uh-oh, that stopped this. I can't go toward the protein I wanted to make. Well, too bad. You have to go back to step one. Try to pull off a methyl group. It's not so easy. And, and so it often moves you back to step one. The synthetic reactions do not know how to stop the current course of progression or why to stop. There's no targeted goal. So if you want to use aldol condensation reactions to make, to do the foremost reaction to build up your, your, your saccharides, for example, they don't know to stop at a furanose. They just keep going to polymer. The same reactions that were made to make that continue on. What the chemist does, it sees when the, when, when the yield of the, the thing they want is optimized, they fish that out, pull it away from the reaction conditions. Molecules don't know when to stop or why to stop, and they don't even know they're going toward life. They have no idea they're going toward a cell. They don't know. There's no brains there. You remember, this is a prebiotic earth. Time, although claimed to be the great savior of abiogenesis, can actually be the enemy because these are often kinetic products, not thermodynamic products. So in other words, with a carbohydrate, they caramelize meaning that they start dehydrating. You'll eliminate water under the same reaction conditions and remove your hydroxyls. Or you get continued reactions, or you get the Conazero reaction, which is you, you get an aldehyde and, and, and an alcohol. The alcohol will go ahead and be oxidized. The aldehyde that was on your sugar got reduced. Boom. It's dead. That's it, because of these Conazero reactions. Time is the enemy. Just like time, you say, well, if you leave the parts there long enough, they'll somehow find each other and get together and somehow... Make a car? No. But even if you could, you leave them long enough to get rusted. They decompose. You want to say, well, there were billions of years available. Duh, that's my point. There's billions of years, so how are you going to do it? They all rust out. They go bad. The parts go bad. You see the analogy? Organic molecules decompose. You say, well, prebiotic earth had less oxygen. Yeah, it had more ammonia. More ammonia is more degrading to organic molecules. You make imines and you, and you, you, you get enamine reactions. Lots of things happen with ammonia. A prebiotic system does not have the ability to easy, easily purify structures. When you make materials, what happens is you have to purify it. You have to fish these molecules out before you go on to the next step or the impurities start stacking up in there and take up your useful reagents. They don't know how to purify easily. You say, well, it crystallized on the surface of this rock. Okay. That one crystallized. And what about the next one? And the next one? And the next Hard to do that. You try crystallization purification, it's not easy in the lab. That's why a lot of students these days just slap things on the columns because it's easier. In the old days, we had to crystallize a lot more. It's not easy to grow crystals. Uh, reagent order, addition order is essential. You want to make a cake? All right, so you got the flour, you got the eggs. And, 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 uh, uh, and so I think what I'll do is I'll just dump the icing in right now. What's the difference? It's all going to go in there anyway. No, a specific order needs to be done. You've got to put on the icing last. This is organic chemistry. You can't just chuck in everything together. There's a specific reagent order. This is hard to do in a prebiotic earth. The parameters of temperature, pressure, solvent, light, no light, atmospheric gases, no gases have to be carefully controlled to build complex molecular structures. Characterization is a hard thing. It's hard to characterize things. How do you characterize the molecules? 
Chemists need to know what they have so they can go on to the next step. There was no characterization tools. How does biology characterize? It has enzymes that come in and check molecular structure. If it's not the right thing, boom, chops it up, and, and, and it, it gets rid of it. But this is prebiology. Nobody knows. And the mass transfer problem is the killer of all roots. So if anybody has done complex organic synthesis, what you do is you start with 100 grams of material, you go a few steps, and you're left with 5 milligrams of material. So you go back and you bring through more according to the protocol that you had worked out so that your yields can now be high because you follow your laboratory notebook. And so you're going along 400 million years to make an intermediate and you run out of material and you go, well, I'll go back and make some more. Okay, go back and make some more. Uh, I don't know how because I never kept the laboratory notebook. Prebiotic Earth never kept the laboratory notebook. So it, when it runs out of material, it doesn't know how to go back. You try to build a cell and make all the compounds that are needed, you're going to have to run through the synthesis many, many times and go back to your notebook and take the optimized yields. So nature keeps no laboratory notebook, so it can't go back for more material. Any synthetic chemist will look at, at the mass transfer problem and go, whoa, <laughs> we have no idea how molecules formed, needed for life. So this is how we made the motor for the nanocar. So you see all of these steps here. You see this one is refluxing, meaning that you're heating this up at tolerant to 110 degrees. This is refluxing in ethanol, so this is at 80 degrees. This is run at 5 degrees. Then you've got to cool it down to minus 10 to minus 15 degrees. And then this you, you dump in at minus 50 degrees. And uh, this you run at room temperature. And then, and then this you run at 60 degrees. And this you run at, 100, uh, at, at 130 degrees. And you say, what's with all the temperature change? Why are you doing this? Well, we just like warming and cooling things. <laughs> no, you have to do this in order to get the chemistry to work. Well, how does that happen on a prebiotic earth? Well, it happened on the edge of a volcano. Okay. And what about the next step? Where, okay, well, then it, it found itself next to, a, ne, 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 next to some big glacier. Okay. And you, you see, you have to do this hundreds and thousands of times just to make something. It's a very difficult problem. You say, well, Jim Tour, what's the answer? I don't know the answer. I'm just telling you the stuff that people pro proclaim that they know how to do it. They're lost. And, and so you, you see here, we, we, we do these reactions. And so if you just look at this one reaction sequence, this is the thing in the box. There's the procedure that we wrote out for the trained chemist to an oven-dried three-neck round-bottom flask. You charge it with the hydrozone 33, add mag sulfate in this quantity, add dichloromethane to the suspension. It was quickly added manganese oxide. And at 5 degrees, the reaction was immediately immersed in a stirred and cold bath, ranging from this. There's a lot of detail. It's hard to make organic compounds. How do you do this on prebiotic earth? Under a rock someplace? In a cave someplace? Nobody knows. <laughs> then you have to characterize it. We use this tool called NMR. And this allows us to characterize molecules. How are things characterized in nature? Enzymes come and do the characterization. How is this done on prebiotic earth? Nobody knows. If you don't know how, what you have, you can't go toward anything. As if it knew what it was going toward anyway. It doesn't know. Characterization is a hard problem. This is the details of what we had to write to tell the world that we understand the structure that we got. This is what was written. But that was just part one. There's part two. So that's what we have to write. So characterization takes much longer than synthesis. You can run a reaction, but you spend a long time trying to figure out the molecular structure. Nobody knows how this was done on a prebiotic earth. And in this paper that we wrote, it had 281 pages that looked like those two previous slides. Just going through the characterization of the motors for the nanocars to convince our colleagues that we got what we got. 
Characterization is very hard. And so here was the first motor, motorized nano car we made. And it was a great car, but the motor only would spin at 1.8 revolutions per hour. <laughs> but then all we did is we pull out that sulfur, close that down to a five-member ring, and then it spins at 3 million rotations per second. How's that sound? So at the molecular scale, small changes make big differences. So how do you pull that sulfur out? Oh, all you do is you just erase that, and you go to that, <laughs> right? And that's what a biologist would do. They would just erase that and go to that. That took us back to step one. Took us back to step one. There's no way to extrude that sulfur. No way to extrude the sulfur. Some may say, may, may, may uh, quote certain reactions. No, you can't do it when there's an SP2 center ne next door. There's no way to do that. You say, well, an enzyme does that. There's no enzyme that we know that does that. But remember, there's no enzymes on a prebiotic earth. You have to go all the way back to step one. But it just took me a billion years to get here. Sorry about that. Doesn't work very well. You've got to go back to step one. You want your cell to work. All right. That's the making the parts. Now we've got to assemble it. Remember, once you have the parts, you've got to assemble it. That's a whole other problem. A protocell is a self-organized, endogenously ordered spherical collection of lipids proposed as a stepping stone to the origin of life. Most so-called protocell assembly experiments in origin of life research can be summed up by this protocol. So don't send me papers. They can all be summed up by this. You purchase homochiral diacetyl lipids from a chemical company. That has stereogenic centers on it. Uh, 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 or you synthesize stereoscrambled lipids from smaller molecules. Add those lipids to water, observe a small amount of it to form the simple and expected thermodynamically driven assembly of those lipids into synthetic bilayer vesicles upon agitation. Generally, the yield is extremely low because you have to put them through shear in order to get any significant yield. Sometimes the researchers will add other molecules that get engulfed by the vesicle as it's forming. They publish a paper claiming that synthetic vesicle is a protocell and suggestive of early forms of cellular life. They'll engage the media, ramp up the hype, and watch a layperson be misled. So, a complex cellular membrane has many things in it. It is not just a homogeneous lipid bilayer, same lipid bilayer, uh, 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 a layer and a layer. No, researchers have identified thousands of different lipid structures in a cell membrane. And they actually form domains and they swarm throughout the process of a cell. It's really quite amazing. Uh, uh, and and uh, uh, if you have monoacial lipids, they destabilize it. So these have to be pure. Lipid bilayers surround subcellular organelles such as nuclei and mitochondria. So you have the nuclei have their own lipid bilayer. Mitochondria have their own lipid bilayer. And sometimes... Two levels of them. Each of these has their own composition. Lipid bilayers are non-symmetric, meaning this top layer has one type of lipid, this bottom layer has another type of lipid con uh, con concentration. And so what happens is nobody knows how to do that. Even in labs today, nobody knows how, without enzymes and flipases, to make just, just a vesicle with different bilayer top and bottom. Every cell has different bilayer, top and bottom. But their protocells, they just, oh, that's a protocell. It's typical of like, it's nonsense. And then through that lipid bilayer, there's all these proteins that go through that are the whole transport agents for bringing molecules in and out of the cell. And then you have, on top of that, you have these glycans. Glycans are sugars hanging off the top. These glycans are highly complex. They're shown as little simple things. A cell is covered with glycans. Oh, it's just sugars. That's easy. No. 
Take D-pyranose. D-pyranose is the simple sugar. If you just take a hexamer of D-pyranose, it has over one trillion constitutional and stereochemical isomers. Think about this. You think DNA has a lot of information. If you take just the A base and you put six of them together, what's the combinations that you can have for this? A, 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 A. That's it. One way that you can put six together. If you have D Pyranose, just a simple sugar. What's the simple sugar that you can put? That's the simple way that you can put this sugar together six of six different ones of them together. Six D Pyranoses together. Over one trillion ways. If you put it together the wrong way, the cell dies. The cell dies. Has to be put together the right way. You try to do carbohydrate chemistry. Try to do carbohydrate synthesis. It's really hard. Because you have multiple free hydroxyls. You have to block some, unblock others. Really hard. And try to, try to get one specific constitution of D-pyranose. That is a huge scientific undertaking. Probably a PhD thesis using all modern synthetic techniques that would never have been available on prebiotic earth. And that's just one of them. This is covered with arrays of them. Much longer than six. Sometimes a hundred different sugars. And if you change the constitution, it doesn't work. How do they address that in their protocell experiments? They don't. They ignore it. Okay. What about the interactomes? These are the non-covalent interactions. The non-covalent interactions. So if you just take, if you just take the proteins in a single yeast cell, simple little cell, little yeast cell, the proteins in there, about 3,000 proteins in there, and you say how these have to be lined up relative to one another, where you get information transferred down them. So when molecules line up near each other, they, they affect their neighboring orbitals, the orbitals on the neighboring one, and information is trans through, tra translated through this. They're, these are these transmission of information sublayers, layer upon layer in a cell. These are complex ordered uh, entities. And so what's the number of combinations? Well, for in a single yeast cell, this group uh, uh, in, in uh, um, Brussels and at Johns Hopkins did the calculation. Just for the protein-protein, this is not protein nucleic acid, 10 to the 79 billion combinations. That's a one with 79 billion zeros after it. That's a big number. One with 79 billion zeros after it. The number of elemental particles in the universe is 10 to the 90. So one with 90 zeros after it. That's the number of elemental particles in the universe. The number of ways you can hook this thing together is 10 to the 79 billion. This is just the non-covalent interactions. But you need to have those lined up the right way. So how does cells survive? When the cell divides, it takes information, puts it under the two halves, and then it comes down and it divides. And it keeps transferring that information. That's why you can't dehydrate a cell and easily rehydrate this thing and get it to work again. These are massive layers of complexity in a single cell. We're clueless on how this happens. How do origin of life researchers address interactomes? They don't. It's like proto-turkeys. Origin of life protocell assembly is akin to buying 20 pounds of sliced turkey meat. Go to a delicatessen, buy 20 pounds of sliced turkey meat. Add a gallon of turkey broth, warm, stick in a few feathers, and suggest that a live turkey is eventually going to come gobbling out. And that's a proto-turkey, or an extant turkey has been made. If you, if you wait enough time, a turkey is going to come out. If you cook long enough. This is a bunch of nonsense, and that's what every protocell experiment is. We are clueless about where life came from. 
origin of information, critical for life, is that you have information. Information is that is DNA or RNA. It's the primary. Information is primary. Matter is secondary. We've just been talking about matter, making the par- parts, assembling the parts. All hard. Now, you have to have information. Even if I gave you the nucleic acids, even if I gave you the nucleotides, so you have the nucleobase with the, 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 the sugar on there, with the phosphate, how are you going to cook, hook the things together? It has to have a specific order to have any utility. That's the information code. The code has to predate any building of this. Nobody knows where the code came from. Try to build a cell even hypothetically. You bring together a dream team and you say, I'll give you all the molecules you want. I'll even give you DNA. I'll give you all the nucleotides. Could you make a cell? And the answer is no. Then you say, well, I'll give you the DNA in the form that you want. So I'll give it to you. I'll give you all the enzymes you want. All the amino acids, everything, everything you want. I'll give you all the car parts right there for a cell. Ask any researcher, can you take those parts, I give them all to you, and make a cell? And the answer would be no. You get all the greatest groups in the world together. They couldn't assemble a cell even with all the parts and the information code. But somehow, under a rock, someplace, this happened. That's origin of life, chemistry. What did, what did Craig Venter do? Doesn't he claim that he made a synthetic cell? When in 2010, what they did is they copied an existing bacteria genome and transplanted, transplanted it into another cell. I, I, buy, I buy a car. Say I, say I buy a Corvette. And I, and, I, and I buy two 2019 Corvettes. I take the computer control box out of one Corvette and I put it in the other Corvette. And I say... I made cars. I made that car. No, you just took one chip out of this thing and you put it in that one. That's what he called the synthetic cell. So, this is what what people read in in books. This is written by a science writer, What is Life? And And he published in Oxford University Press. He says, life began with little bags of garbage. Random assortments of molecules doing some crude kind of metabolism. That is stage one. The garbage bags grow and occasionally split into two, and the ones that grow and split the fastest win. Few origin of life researchers would state it so shamelessly. Nonetheless, little bags of garbage are precisely what they've been making. Those little bags of garbage have no more resemblance to living cells than a big bag of garbage resembles a horse. This, and this is what, what uh, the world reads. This is what people read in their scientific textbooks all through high school and even into colleges. All right, how did life begin? So Nobel laureate Jack Sostek from Harvard wrote in Nature in 2018. If you think I'm just pulling these random from these weird journals, how about Nature? In 2018, wrote, how did life begin? And he says, you know, there was this atmosphere and lightning impacts and rain and iron cyanide, and life as we know requires RNA. Some scientists believe RNA emerged directly. Nucleotides, building blocks for RNA, eventually formed, and they joined together to make strands of RNA. Remember, there's no code here. There's no stereogenic control. You can't have RNA. R stands for ribo, ribose. You don't have ribose unless you can control stereocenters. Some stages in this process are still not well understood. Uh, Okay. Once RNA was made, some strands of it became enclosed within tiny vesicles, formed from spontaneously assembled fatty acids, 
lipids into membranes. Where'd you get the lipids, by the way? I don't know. They're there, there. And it created the first protocells. As the membranes incorporated more fatty acids, they grew and they divided at the same time. Internal chemical reactions drove replication of, of encapsulated RNA. This is a bunch of nonsense. So here's the picture that he showed in nature. He says, these are simple sugars. They, those are not simple sugars. That, you know, you, you have to show the hydrogen atoms on, and on anything that is not carbon. But he left those out, but we'll give him that. But even that, that is, that, that is, that is glycerol. This is ethylene glycol. Those are not sugars. You'd have to oxidize one of those to a carbonyl in order to have a sugar. These are cyanide derivatives, and he says phosphate. That looks like, and he says this is RNA. This is not RNA nucleotide because there is no stereochemistry on his ribose. If there's no stereochemistry, it's not ribose. It can't be R. It can't, there's, there's no, there's no stereochemistry. But look what he says. He says you put heat and UV light, you mix these together, and you get an RNA nucleotide. Is that true? No. No, no way. No way. If you look at what, at, at what Sutherland did to get his RNA nucleotide with the phosphate closed on this, he had about a dozen synthetic steps to do that. A dozen synthetic steps. And Sostek says, oh, well, just UV light and heat and you'll get that. And that's in nature. And the article that he references is this where it takes 10 synthetic steps to do that. And, oh, by the way, none of this is stereochemically pure, even though Sutherland shows it is stereochemically pure. And in the vast majority of steps, he doesn't use what he make, what he made, because what he made was impure. And he couldn't fish it out. So then he says, oh, I see a little blip of it in my HPLC. Now I'll just buy that for convenience and use the stereochemically purified one and use that for the next step. And then he did that again and again and again. It's cheating all the way. So, so here's, his, here's all the procedure that he goes through, all the detail, just to reduce this one carbonyl to this, this triol here, to this glycerol. Just to reduce that. All right, here's all, here's all the different compounds that formed in there. So here's what it should look like, the NMR. Here's what he gets. And he sees it, he says, oh, you see, therefore it's there. I'm not going to bother fishing it out. I'll just buy that and use it for the next step. Any synthetic chemist would know that's cheating. But a prebiotic earth, that could figure it out, because prebiotic earth is pretty smart, you know. <laughs> I sent that Sostek article to one of my colleagues who's not into origin of life, just a synthetic organic chemist, a great chemist. Here's what he wrote back in his email. This article is one of the worst I've read in a while. Sostek is weaving a story based on pure conjecture and wishful thinking, definitely not worthy of a journal like Nature. He provides no references for the processes that are quote-unquote well understood. He uses terms like scientists believe based on no evidence whatsoever. In summary, this article is junk. I am astonished that he, as a Nobel laureate, can just gloss over chemical details. Are you the only one calling these guys out? Yes. I'm the only one in academics calling them out. Very few of us calling them out. And, and they publish again and again like this, and the world gets deceived. Exquisite exactness. So there's this, this article by, by Sutherland where he's, he's making these RNA intermediates. And here's, if you just look at the protocols, he has these huge protocols. So he, he so just the, pre, just the synthesis of one simple compound. You take copper one and he, he mixed copper chloride with, with potassium chloride and he made Newland's catalyst. This is all happening on a prebiotic earth. He's mimicking 
quote unquote, mimicking prebiotic earth at 70 degrees. Then in a separately source, he put acetylene gas was prepared from calcium carbide. You drip water and calcium carbide, you get acetylene. And he bubbled that through the Newland catalyst and he made acrylonitrile. You know how unstable acrylonitrile is? You just look at it, it polymerizes. It's an unstable molecule that needs which was then treated with potassium cyanide for one hour. Then five equivalents of ammonia as a 13 molar Ammonia, ammonium solution was adjusted pH 9. You think this is, this is happening under a rock. This is what he mimics as prebiotic earth with sodium hydroxide to generate the desired aminopropionitrile. And then all of this, this is again and again, and this is published in Nature Chemistry. Then he goes on to say this, that all the cellular subsystems could have arisen simultaneously through common chemistry. Are you kidding me? All the subsystems in a cell made by common chemistry? And he publishes this in Nature Chemistry and they accept it? These guys need to be called out. I do nanotechnology. I make small molecules and then we build them into working systems. It's much harder to build a molecule and, and build a system out of it than just throw it in a freezer and publish a paper. You have to build a working system to build a system. And he says all the cell, cellular stuff, all of them, could be made by a common chemistry. And people believe this nonsense. And this guy's at Cambridge University in England. This is not some fly-by-night place. <laughs> I'm beginning to see some agreement. There was a paper by Clemens Reichert who said such a pure chemical scenario is unrealistic prebiotically but necessary. Like I said, there's mixtures here. You can't use mixtures. You've got to use pure chemicals. He's saying the same thing. Further, the ideal experiment does not involve any human intervention. I mean, every experiment has had gobs of human intervention. How close have researchers come to making an artificial cell? Well, look what the article says. Biologists create the most lifelike artificial cells yet, published in science. And I'm like, whoa, I want to see. How lifelike is this cell? Well, let me start reading about this. Well, they're quoting this paper, was in Nature Communications, and a communication and quorum sensing non-living mimics of eukaryotic cells. Okay, well, here's what it is. Semi-porous microcapsules micro made of plastic. Not, not even a protosome, plastic. This is from, made by acrylate polymerization containing clay were prepared using modern microfluidics techniques. They went into a clean room, did microfluidics techniques to make these little plastic balls. Clay has a high affinity for DNA. So that when they add a DNA to the solution, it goes through the, the, the little plastic uh, uh, capsule and it sticks to the DNA because because DNA is negatively charged, clay is positively charged. So DNA goes in and sticks to the clay. And then, and so it diffuses in. Then the requisite ribosomes, the mRNA, the enzymes and the reagents were purchased or extracted from living systems. You didn't even make them. They're just purchased and thrown in there. Those go in there as well. And you get normal protein synthesis. This happens all the time in the lab. You add enzymes and you add the reagents and you'll start banging out molecules. This is, this is taking nature, nature's control. We do this all the time in test tubes and bottles and flasks in vats in industry. He's doing it in a little clay ball. And he calls this the closest thing ever. Science calls this the closest thing ever to eukaryotic cells. And they call it quorum sensing because the things that diffuse out of that diffuse into the neighbor. And it diffuse, diffuses more into the nearest neighbors than the far neighbors. Well, that's this normal diffusion. The things that are closer get more. They call that quorum sensing. <laughs> this is nonsense. 
The chemistry of exogenously added reagents will work regardless of the container, whether it's plastic, semi-porous, microcapsule, in a test tube, or a large industrial vat. This is, this is nonsense. All right, so what we've got is we've got fool's gold. So, so alchemists used to try to make gold. And what they learned is they could take iron, and they could add sulfur to iron, and they could get something that is called pyrite, that we call pyrite, and it was iron sulfide. They thought, well, maybe we're, we're making gold here because it looks like gold. Doesn't that look like gold? But it's not gold. That's what's called fool's gold. It's pyrite. But if you just take iron and you mix it with sulfur and warm those two up, you will get pyrite. And you may say, Jim Tour, why are you, why are you raining on their parade? And, you, know, you know, maybe they'll figure this thing out if you let them go. Well, why should we stop the alchemists? You know, just let them add sulfur and see if they can make gold. No, you can add sulfur all day to iron, all day to any metal you want. It'll turn yellow, maybe even golden. But you're never going to make gold. Never. Never. Somebody's got to stop you. The only way you can change one element into another is you've got to change the number of protons. And you need some nuclear reactor for that, which is really expensive, a lot more expensive than gold. In 1775, the French Academy in Paris refused to entertain any further proposals for perpetual motion machines. The devices just did not work as advertised. The mature science of thermodynamics, which gave us a theoretical account for why the perpetuum mobile schemes failed, lay a hundred years in the future. Likewise, origin of life research seems sadly adrift, and its inability to advance bears witness to that fact. So, I'm calling for a timeout. A change is warranted that demands addressing hurdles such as the origin of life's code, roots to the complex assembly and interactomes that are essential to cellular functioning, and mass throughput in synthesis to provide the requisite quantities of molecules in their homochiral forms, or some conjecture on why that's not needed. But we have to stop this because the world thinks we can make life. We're nowhere close. Okay, so how have so-called scientific facts ever before been shown to be wrong? You know, if, if these are, have, have, have any facts ever been shown to be wrong? Well, does the universe have a beginning? The scientific fact changed in 1964. If you ask scientists in the mid-50s, does the universe have a beginning? They would all say no. The vast majority would say no. It always existed. And materials were added to the, in, the universe, and, and, and uh, they had these theories. It wasn't until until the Big Bang Theory, which came many years earlier, the theory, but when it was confirmed in 1964, that by the, by the, the steady-state theory changed to the Big Bang Theory, and that was because of microwave cosmic radiation in 1964. So prior to 1964, everything that people learned in schools about the age of the universe was totally wrong. Darwinian theory to punctuated equilibrium. Scientific fact changed in 1972. Eldrin and Gould proposed that the degree of gradualism commonly attributed to Charles Darwin is virtually non-existent in the, in the, in the fossil record. So prior to 1972, there were gradual changes in evolution. Now we know that that's not the case, that, that, that Eldridge and Gould had, had, uh, had uh, proposed that there were massive changes that occurred over short periods of time, and then... It would, it would become static again, and then massive changes over short periods of time. Climate change killed off the dinosaurs. That fact changed in 1980 with the Alvarez hypothesis that an asteroid hit, hit at the Yucatan Peninsula, iridium-rich uh, 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 um, asteroid that sent dirt up into the air, that wiped out, the, the, that closed off the sun, the, the, the herbivores died, the carnivores that fed on them died, and that's how the dinosaurs died off. That didn't change until 1980. 
how long did dinosaurs die off? Well, all the, all the you read any books that tell you 66 million years ago. Well, now we're finding soft tissue. How stable is soft tissue? Scientific fact is being questioned since 2007. Mary Higby Schweitzer, a paleontologist at NC State, led the group that discovered the remains of red blood cells in dinosaur fossils and later discovered soft tissue remains in Tyrannosaurus rex specimens. People didn't receive that very well. Now, lots of them are being found. In 2015, researchers reported finding structures similar to red blood cells and collagen. That's all protein preserved in the bone of fossil of Cretaceous dinosaur specimens, which are approximately 75 million years old. And if you're an organic chemist and you look at, at molecules, organic molecules surviving for millions of years, you go, um, how about we do some Arrhenius plots on this and see how long these things can really survive? I mean, this is crazy high numbers for molecules, red blood cells, red blood cells there from Tyrannosaurus rex. So there's a lot of things we don't know. Things are constantly being questioned. And that's okay. It's okay for science not to know. And it's okay to do research. But then we've got to say what it is. This is a hypothesis. This is speculation. It's not fact. Ramifications of calling conjectures facts. Claims that mislead the patient taxpayer are unhelpful and the public will eventually distrust scientific claims even into other fields. Uncorrected or unfounded assertions jeopardize science beyond a singular field, especially since there's mounting distrust of higher education in general. Condescending comments toward the public or a student, if they will not embrace our conjectures as facts, will lead to continued divisions between scientists and non-scientists, which can yield public reluctance to fund our research. We must tell the truth with specificity. If it's a fact, say it. If it's not a fact, say it. Blackballing scientists if they bear legitimate non-conformist views by excluding them from professional societies and academies, withholding their funding or denying them tenure is anti-scientific and it will retard the advancement of science. And that's what's happening today. Scientific fact versus the Bible. So now I'm done with the scientific part. I'm going to start bringing in the Bible. So you, boom, clear line of demarcation. Did I need anything about God to talk about what I just talked about? No, I just use science to critique science. A scientific fact. Is there a scientific fact? Yeah, there's plenty of them. Water is, has two hydrogen atoms, one oxygen atom. That's the same throughout the universe. doesn't matter where you go, that's water. Will not change. There's never been discordance between a scientific fact and statements in the Bible. So there's no need to reconcile them. There's never been a discord between what is known as a fact and what's written in the Bible. So-called scientific facts, which are really theories, are constantly changing, even on the orders of, order of decades and certainly on the order of a century. So trying to twist the Bible to fit some scientific theory is a frustrating endeavor because you keep trying to have to move around the Bible. The Bible stays the same. The, 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 the so-called facts change. There are facts and there are theories and we need to be able to specify the two. Don't let professors with their bold claims of facts upset you. Theories or conjectures are not facts. But unfortunately and shamefully, many professors themselves do not make the necessary distinctions. This leads to the confusion of generations of students and even professors themselves are confused on these things. Even professors. Many professors don't mean to be throwing these things around as, as facts when they're conjecture. They're just part of the whole system. Even science professors, you think, no, science, no, trust me, I have talked to them. They're so confused on these issues. This is 
to the student inundated with misinformation. This is something to those of you who want to hold on to a biblical worldview. Deuteronomy 13, 3 and 4 says, You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love Him with all your heart and with all your soul. It's the Lord your God you must follow and Him you must revere. Keep His commandments and obey Him. Serve Him and hold Him fast. This was the word concerning false prophets. And people who will project as fact that which is really conjecture are acting as if they're false prophets. And you you don't have to take hold of them. Don't let these things shake your faith. Just give it another 50 years. These things, all of these things are going to change. We're going to get more evidence. Things will change. We're clueless on the origin of life. All right, now I'm going to just tell you about my coming to faith. How did I come to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, I was 18 years old and I was in, I would just had gone to college. I came from a Jewish home in New York City, secular Jewish home. And I met a guy in a laundry room and he said, and we got to talking. I said, what do you want to do when you graduate? He said he wanted to become a missionary. And I was like, a missionary? Why would you? I didn't even know missionaries existed. I mean, I, and I said to him, why do you need missionaries? You've got TV. You're just beaming in there. You don't even have to go. And he said he'd like to give me a, an illustration of the gospel. And so he drew this out for me and he had me read this verse. For all of sin that falls short of the glory of God. And I read that verse and I looked at him and I said, I'm not a sinner. He was a bit taken back. And, and uh, you know, for Jews, we don't worry too much about sin. We really didn't. You know, you go to the synagogue once a year in Yom Kippur, you're good to go. And, and I thought sin, I thought sin was you, you had to hurt somebody. I said, I never killed anyone. I never robbed a bank. How can I be a sinner? Because in the Jewish mindset is you have to really do something to hurt. It's not what you might think or something. You know, Christians are like, oh, no, I had a bad thought. I'm a sinner. We, we never had any of those struggles. <laughs> so he had me read another verse. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Pow. <laughs> I was 18 years old. <laughs> you know? This was like my life. And, and even back then, this was before the internet. I had just come out of high school. I used a PDP-11. Anvar, do you remember PDP-11? It's a computer that runs on a ticker tape. It was even before I had the Fortran cards. I mean, this is what I was using. There were no, there was no internet back then. And, and, uh, um, but I, I got these magazines. I worked in the gas station just outside New York City. I told the guy I was 16. I was really 14. I started working there and I got addicted to pornography because men would throw away their magazines on Friday nights, the salesmen on their way home, and I cleaned the parking lots. And I became addicted to pornography. And that verse really convicted me of all things for him to read from the Bible. Boom. He got my attention. Then he had me read this verse. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. There's this view that if my good works somehow outweigh my bad works, I'll be okay. And the Bible says, no, you can't do works to get you there. No matter what you do, you are a sinner separated from God. Your good works aren't necessarily bad, but they're never going to get you across to God. For by grace you've been saved. I remember he told me, grace means an undeserved gift. You've been saved through faith. Faith. In other words, this is a gift that I receive by believing. It's an unusual gift. Usually I hand you a gift, you take it out of your hand, give it. you got the gift. You don't take it out of your hands, you don't get the gift. This gift you get by believing. It's a gift that you get by believing. 
By grace you're saved. It's a gift from God. You can't work your way into this. It's nothing that I can do to work my way into this. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated His love while I'm yet a sinner. I don't have to get myself cleaned up. Maybe if I beat myself on the back with chains and try to be good for a week, then maybe... No, you can't do it. He came to save sinners. If you're not a sinner, this is not for you. This is for sinners. The Bible says Christ died for the ungodly. If you're godly, this faith is not for you. Go somewhere else. But if you're ungodly, this is for you. Christ died for the ungodly. He died for sinners. This was all new to me. Maybe you've seen these before. I never saw these. I was a Jewish kid who never read even the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament. I never read any of that. Secular family. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His own Son. Say you're walking with, I don't know, your little sister and she's three years old and you're walking along and some big dog comes running at you. What are you going to do? You're going to pick up your sister and hold out the dog and take, 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 take the kid. Leave me alone. No, you're going to protect your sister. You protect the child. You do anything to protect the child. What God did is He takes His Son and He offers Him up for us. This is like the most extreme love. Demonstration of love. Jesus, and remember He drew this cross across this thing. He was drawing it out on a piece of paper. He provided the way. And this is the key verse. This is right here. This is the culmination of it all. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. This is a physical resurrection. Jesus was put in the grave. After three days, He came out. He didn't just hide from behind a tree. No, He lived with them. He was with them for 40 days. He spent with them. He ate with them. He fellowshiped with them. He said, look, I'm here. I'm flesh. He ate with them. He says, you got something here to eat? They said, give him fish. Give him fish. Because Jesus loved fish. He was always, you know, multiplying baking fish on the beach. So he gave him fish. They knew if he ate fish, that had to be Jesus. He ate it. And he says, have you ever seen this? Have you, in Luke chapter 24, you had never seen a spirit eat. Have any of you ever seen a spirit eat? None of you. Spirits don't eat, Jesus said. Jesus ate. One of his disciples said, I won't believe it until I stick my finger into the holes in his hands, stick my hand into the hole in his side. So he appeared to him and says, Thomas, do it. Thomas like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and they're taking turns just doing this. He really rose from the dead for 40 days. Over 500 people saw him at one time. There is more evidence for the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ than anything in that era. Now, here's what's the amazing thing. I see somebody come to the Lord almost every week. Almost every week I see somebody come to the Lord. I, I, I have these meals and I, and I sit at my house or I sit with students and somebody's going to come to the Lord. The, either undergraduates at Rice or graduate students or postdocs or professors or students from the medical center across the street or young physicians. I only speak with educated people. How can they go from not believing in the resurrection to believing in the resurrection in a 10-minute conversation. How can that be? If I tried to convince you that Santa Claus exists, that there's a little chubby man on the North Pole dressed in red that makes presents for kids and hands them out on Christmas, that's more believable than a physical resurrection. Because you could take a man and set him on the North Pole in a red outfit and have him making toys. That could happen. But how do I convince educated people of a resurrection in a 10-minute conversation? Professors, how do, I, how do I see this every week? The only way that I can explain this 
is that God has taken individuals and placed the truth of the resurrection on their heart already. And that's how they go from not believing into the resurrection to believing in the resurrection. I tell them about the evidence that's there and the eyewitnesses, but they've not examined any of this themselves. Just based on this conversation. November 7th, 1977, I was all alone in my room. That room, room 1812 at Syracuse University. I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, forgive me because I am a sinner. And I knew I was a sinner because I realized that sin wasn't just what I did with my hands. It was what I did with my mind. And I knew I was a sinner. And I asked God to forgive me on that day in that room. And then all of a sudden, I felt this amazing peace come over me and this lifting of this burden of sin. And all of a sudden, somebody was standing in my room. And I looked, who's standing in my room? My roommate wasn't there, and I opened my eyes. And I couldn't see anybody. But the presence of Jesus was so strong, I just started weeping like a baby, which was very unusual for me. And I didn't want to get up because the love of God just filled that room, and Jesus was there, loving me. And I just didn't want to get up. His presence was so good. I wasn't scared He wasn't condemning me. It was just love and forgiveness and compassion. That's the way Jesus is. Just poured out upon my life that day. And I'm a Jewish kid from New York City. What am I going to say? I didn't tell anybody. But I knew something happened in my heart. I started all of a sudden thinking a lot about God. I opened the Bible. The Bible never made sense to me before that. I started to open up the Bible and boom, it just started all making sense. And every decision I was making, I was thinking about God in this. Two weeks later, the guy who had shared this, this story with me was lived on my phone. He says, Jim, have you accepted Jesus in your heart? I said, I think I have. Why do you ask? He says, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. He saw something in me. And I said, how can I keep this feeling? He said, if you read your Bible every day, you'll keep this feeling. If you don't, you won't. That was digital to me. I could understand digital. For over 40 years, I've read the Bible every day. I read from Genesis chapter 1. And I start lead, and I pick up where I left off the day before, and I read through to Revelation chapter 22. And when I'm done, I start again, and I just read it every day. Wake up early in the morning, read it every day. God says this: I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God says He will wipe out your transgressions for His own sake, and He will not remember your sins. He will not remember your sins. What do you mean? Wipes out your, your transgressions, I will wipe out your transgressions for my own sake. It's because a lot of times we feel too unworthy to have our sins wiped out. If my son were arrested and put in jail, I would go right away and bail him out. If he said to me, Dad, I deserve to be here. For what I did, I deserve to be here. Just let me stay here in jail. I would say, no, you're my son. You're getting out. I'm going to bail you out. He's my son. For my sake, you're coming out. God, for our sake, he wipes out. For, for his sake, he wipes out our transgressions. Even if you don't feel worthy, he's going to forgive your transgressions. So I bring you back to this verse. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the barrier to salvation. Is we have to be willing to confess that Jesus is Lord and be willing to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we will be saved. How could God 
put such an incredible barrier before us of a physical resurrection if He didn't already place that truth in our hearts? It's the only way I can explain it. This is your day. If you do not know the Lord, this is your day. Come to Him. I see people come to Him every week, one-on-one, postdocs, professors. Every week I see it. Just from this simple story. The gospel never changes. The gospel never changes. The same story that took me when I was 18. I've seen take people in their 60s, 70s. My mother was in her 70s when she came to the Lord. Jewish woman in her 70s. No matter who you are, you can come to the Lord. You can come to the Lord this day. This is your day to come to the Lord. This is your day. Don't let this pass by. Today is the day of salvation. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. You may say, well, I want to go home and think about it. Don't. Do it now. The Bible says, I made haste and I did not delay to keep your commandments. Psalm 119, verse 60. I made haste. I didn't delay. You don't delay on this. Immediate business, uh, obedience. I don't have any authority to share this with you tomorrow. Today is your time. Today, come to the Lord. I am going to pray right now. I am going to pray. And I ask you, I beg you, invite Jesus in your heart. I have seen lives change. I saw my own life change, and I see lives change all the time. In my research group, I mean this one life after another. I got story after story where people's lives were miserable, and they started seeking the Lord, and so many things started changing. But the immediate thing was salvation can come to you this day. Don't let this day go by. I am going to pray. You pray with me and invite Jesus in your heart this day. Invite Jesus in your heart this day. Let's pray. Pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, forgive me because I am a sinner. Forgive me. Come into my life. I believe that Jesus is Lord. And this very day, I believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. Lord, thank you for your salvation. Fill me with your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I pray for these people. Father, for the ones here who do not know you, Lord, I pray that this very day that their lives would pray this prayer and they'd enter into the kingdom. And Father, for those who know you, Father, that they would believe all the stronger and not be upset by the little things at life that come at them to try to convince them otherwise, but they would follow you and love you. In the name of Jesus and for his glory, amen. If you, if you prayed that prayer with me, you're going to be handing out something, right? Just make a little note on there. You at least owe me that. I don't get paid to come here. Just take my time. You at least owe me that, that you prayed that prayer today. Just write it on there. And, and I just want to know that, all right? Because I just want to give glory to God for that.